This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, said that conditions in the Donbass region in the east of the country were indescribably difficult as Russian forces intensified their assault there. His government reiterated a plea to be sent more long-range weapons by Western countries. Meanwhile, Emmanuel Macron, France's president, and Olaf Scholz, Germany's chancellor, urged Vladimir Putin, their Russian counterpart, to enter serious direct negotiations with Mr. Zelensky. Kamala Harris, America's vice president, called for more stringent gun control laws, including a ban on assault weapons. Ms. Harris was speaking at the funeral of a woman shot in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, on May 14th, 10 days before 19 children and two adults were shot and killed in a school in Uvalde, Texas. Police in Uvalde are coming under increasing scrutiny for their slow response to the massacre. Some public transport services resumed in Beijing on Sunday after officials claimed that they had brought the COVID-19 outbreak in China's capital under control. In Shanghai, where cases are at their lowest since mid-March, authorities announced that the testing requirements needed to enter public places will be loosened from Wednesday as the city attempts to ease out of a two-month lockdown. The UN's human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, said at the end of a visit to China that she had raised concerns with the country's leadership about its treatment of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. The western region houses forced labour sites and re-education camps, where millions of Uyghurs have been detained. China denies human rights violations. Western ambassadors have largely resisted invitations to visit because they do not want to be used for propaganda. Atiku Abubakar, the former vice president of Nigeria, was chosen to lead the People's Democratic Party the country's main political opposition, into the general election next year. Mr Abubakar campaigned on the promise of decentralising government and accused the ruling All Progressives Congress Party of dividing Nigeria along regional and religious lines. Several candidates in the PDP primary were accused of trying to buy votes. The European Commission proposed delaying restrictions on imports of Russian oil through a key pipeline in an attempt to appease the government of Hungary, which has been holding up a package of sanctions meant to punish Russia for invading Ukraine. The Druzhba pipeline is Hungary's main source of crude imports. Instead, the package would initially only target seaborne shipments of oil. Triangle of Sadness, a satire by Ruben Ostlund, a Swedish director, won the Palme d'Or, the top award at the Cannes Film Festival. The prizes for Best Director and Best Actor both went to South Korean filmmakers, the former to Park Chan-wook for Decision to Leave, an erotic crime film, and the latter to Song Kang-oh for his performance in Broker, a drama. And word of the week. Jubilee. A celebration of stasis. Britain is preparing to mark the Queen's 70 years on the throne. And now, here's a deeper look at the day ahead. Colombia's dangerously polarized election. On Sunday, Colombians go to the polls to choose a new president in the most important election in the country's recent history. 
Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla, hopes to become Colombia's first-ever leftist president. He has promised a job guarantee, free university tuition, and a ban on new exploration of oil and gas, which make up half the country's exports. These policies could cost 5.5% of GDP over four years. Mr. Petro hopes to find the money by raising taxes and reforming pensions. Other contenders include Frederico Gutierrez, an establishment candidate who represents a coalition of right-wing parties, and Rodolfo Hernandez, a populist outsider running as an independent. Mr. Petro leads the race, but is unlikely to win the 50% of votes needed to avoid a runoff. Mr. Hernandez's surging support means the pair could meet again on June 19th. The campaign has been tense. Mr. Petro has received death threats. A close result could be disputed, and that risks trouble. Israelis and Palestinians brace for trouble. The anniversary on Sunday of Israel's capture of the eastern part of Jerusalem during the Six-Day War in 1967 is commemorated very differently. Israelis celebrate the unification of their capital as, quote, Jerusalem Day. But to Palestinians, it was the start of 55 years of military occupation. One of the most contentious Israeli celebrations is the, quote, flag march, organized by right-wing activists. Its route, through Palestinian parts of the city, is a source of tension and often violent clashes. Last year, the Israeli government changed the route at the last moment, but that didn't stop Hamas, the Islamist organization that rules the Palestinian enclave of Gaza, from launching rockets into Israel, sparking an 11-day war. Under pressure from the right wing of his precarious coalition, Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, this year intends to revert to normal. Even as 3,000 police officers try to prevent violence in Jerusalem, eyes will be on Gaza as well. The India Premier League scores big. Few moments in cricket are as exciting as watching a batsman belt the last ball of a run chase for six to win the match. Last month, Rahul Tawatia, an Indian player, hit two sixes off the last two balls of a game to secure victory for his team, Gujarat Titans. On Sunday, the Titans take on the Rajasthan Royals in the final of the Indian Premier League, cricket's glitziest tournament. Expect delirium at the 132,000-seater Narendra Modi Stadium in Gujarat, now the biggest cricket ground in the world. Seeing the game played live is especially welcome after two years of COVID-19, during which matches were played in near-empty grounds with pre-recorded crowd noise. Over 400 million viewers tuned in to watch each of the last four editions of the tournament. Small wonder media companies won a piece of the action. Next month, Reliance, Amazon, and Disney are expected to compete to bid more than $5 billion for the right to broadcast the IPL from 2023 to 2027. With that kind of money, the Indian Cricket Board has hit a sweet spot. New York's Blue Note Festival hits the right notes. One of jazz's most enduring legends began in 1939, when two German-Jewish exiles, Alfred Lyon and Francis Wolfe, founded Blue Note Records in New York City. It was to become the most successful label in jazz history. The record label is now part of Universal, a music giant, but the Blue Note Club, an intimate venue in Greenwich Village, is still independently owned. 
opened in 1981, the club's reputation has kept on growing. In 2011, its owners founded the Blue Note Jazz Festival. That has grown steadily too. It now lasts for the whole of June. The Blue Note brand draws top acts to the citywide festival, while free outdoor gigs attract a diverse audience. This year, these include concerts in Central Park by Herbie Hancock, a celebrated pianist, on June 11th, and the George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic Collective on June 15th. On June 1st, Robert Glasper, a pianist and arranger who described jazz as the, quote, mother of hip-hop, will headline a new stage in Washington Square Park. Weekend Profile, Sir Michael Lockett, Britain's official party monster. Who better to portray Queen Elizabeth II than a 22-year-old Singaporean dancer? On June 5th, Janice Ho will play the future monarch as a young princess, dancing with a 21-foot-tall dragon puppet in an elaborate pageant in central London to mark the climax of the Platinum Jubilee celebrations. Miss Ho was selected for the role, say the organizers, to reflect the, quote, makeup of Britain and London today. Following more traditional fairs such as military bands, the dragon dance sets the tone for a day-long carnival, the highlight of four days of hoopla and holiday to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Queen's ascension to the throne. And, as so often for such national events, Sir Michael Lockett will be at the heart of it all. Meanwhile, some 150 official, quote, national treasures, including fellow nonagenarian Sir David Attenborough, will help Her Majesty party. There will be a retro fashion show of Britain's, quote, tribes, jivers, punks, and ravers, and an interpretation of the 1953 coronation in, quote, Afro-Caribbean style. Finally, the Queen will be serenaded by Ed Sheeran, a pop star. This eclectic mix of ancient and modern, pomp and pop, flair and tradition has become the hallmark of Britain's post-imperial ceremonies, and Sir Michael has been involved in almost all of them. The lean, unassuming 74-year-old is at the helm of this pageant as co-chairman. He also helped steer the Golden Jubilee concerts at Buckingham Palace in 2002 and the Diamond Jubilee's Thames River pageant 10 years later. Sir Michael's Events Company also helped organize the opening and closing ceremonies of the London Olympics in 2012. He opened the Shard and oversaw the inaugural New Year's Eve fireworks at the London Eye. The country rarely parties without Sir Michael. He admits to being an, quote, obsessive, waking up in the small hours to worry about his to-do list. The son of an army officer, Sir Michael chose to go straight into business rather than attend university. He says that storytelling is the most important means of communication, and on June 5th, he hopes to be telling the story not just of, quote, an incredible life, but also, quote, the second Elizabethan age. The winners of this week's quiz. Thank you to everyone who took part in this week's quiz. The winners, chosen at random from each continent, were Asia, Izumiwaki, Tokyo, Japan. North America, Jane Gose, Kihei, Hawaii, United States. Central and South America, Celso Covre, Brasilia, Brazil. Europe, Marga Peters, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Africa, Machaba Sathika, Klerksdorp, South Africa. Oceania, Linda Hazelhurst, Sydney, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of Jimmy Stewart, Avro Lancaster, Hanover, 
Paul Tudor Jones and Windsor Knott. The theme is British royal houses. Stuart, Lancaster, Hanover, Tudor, and Windsor. Weekly Crossword Welcome to our new crossword, designed for experienced cruciverbalists and newcomers alike. Both sets of clues give the same answers. Cryptic Clues One down. Lancasterian town where sheep droppings come from. Ten. One across. Boris hides inside Indian sage. Five. Two across. Fab South forms German world beater. Four. Three across. Irish County Romeo gets a dressing. Five. Quick clues. One down. Where Britain saw roistering in 1809. 10. One across. Tory windfall exploiter. 5. Two across. The world's largest chemicals company. 4. Three across. What Gustavo Petro was in Bogota. 5. Email all four answers by 9 a.m. BST on Monday to crossword at economist.com, along with your home city and country. We will pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent in Friday's edition. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Maya Angelou. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. That's the World in Brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.